This episode of the Rock Solid Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp Therapy Online. I want you to want me. Make me a deal and make it good for me. I won't get full of myself, I can't afford to be. This is small town music, this is big town music. He's ahead of his time, you know, but he can't use it. If only he could prove it. Hey everybody, welcome to Rock Solid, the comedy podcast for all things music, both new and classic. I'm Pat Francis, and joining me in the Zoom room today to promote his new book, This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick, please welcome author Brian J. Cramp. I call you BJ. How you doing today, BJ? Hey, I'm good, Pat. It's great to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, first thing out of the box, I have to tell you, the book is fabulous. Thank you. There was another cheap trick book that came out years and years and years ago called Reputation is a Fragile Thing. And for me, that's always been the Bible for cheap trick fans. Yeah, me too. But now... Wait a minute. <laughs> we have another Bible. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because <laughs> this is fantastic. And look, when someone tells me they're going to write a book, or when someone tells me they're going to do anything, I take it with a grain of salt. And then, and I'm a creative person, but I've seen when people try to do stuff and how difficult it is to do stuff. And so when you told me you were going to write a book, uh, whenever that was, I was like, all right, well, you know, fingers crossed, but this, I'm holding it up. This, this is a re this is the real deal. This isn't mm -hmm. self-published. This is nope. jawbone press. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Are you, you gotta be over the moon about this. Yeah. It's definitely a dream come true. I've always been a big reader of books like this and I, always been a writer and aspiring writer and so it's kind of both of my worlds of a writer and a huge music fan coming together and you know a book about my favorite band i mean yeah well what else could you ask for what else could you ask for now look i'm cool in the podcast world and that's why jawbone 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 press sent me two copies that i'm going to give away in conjunction with this episode Awesome. So, because I'm the master at getting free stuff. <laughs> Try to outdo me, people. All right. BJ, this is your first book, right? Mm hmm Yeah. Uh, how do you follow this up? I mean, you, like you just said, you love to read, you love to write, you love music. This is your favorite band. You get a book deal. This isn't self-published. Tell me about the process of just getting a book deal. Well, it 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 all came down to you know cheap talk and uh steven roth was a listener of cheap talk and he was the one who recommended that i that jawbone might be interested in something like this and you know jawbone is one of the only publishers that you can you could work with without an agent you know that's the difficult part of getting your foot in the door yeah but jawbone you you know most publishers won't even talk to you without an agent but jawbone will so that was a huge part of it. And 
another part was once I was in contact with Jawbone, I pretty much had a finished draft of the book. So they already knew that there was already something there to work with, although it's a much better book now than it was when uh, I was first pitching at the Jawbone because <laughs> once I got a publisher, Bunny and Ken Adamani were much more forthcoming with information, which means so getting a publisher just made it a better book in that way too. Because there's, I think there's a lot more input, especially from Bunny, than I would have had if I self-published. So, and you see all the reviews coming out. So, you know, getting a publisher just helped in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, and, I mean, it, it adds it adds credibility to you mm -hmm. as a writer and um, and the book as an entity. Um, I mean, everything about it is great. Like, I don't know what I thought I was going to get in the mail. But it wasn't mm -hmm. it wasn't as great as what I got. And that is not a slight on anyone, but the book is filled with pictures I've never seen before. I didn't know if there, I didn't think there was going to be any pictures in it. Some are in color and in black and white. <laughs> um, it, the layout's great. You can drop in anywhere, which is I like that about any rock book. Yeah. You know, you can I don't like to call it a bathroom book. I don't read in the bathroom. That's gross. But you can just <laughs> drop in anywhere. You know, it's read true. a couple pages, go somewhere else. And you're right. Bunny Carlos is quoted all over this book. Uh, did you conduct those interviews yourself? Yeah. Yeah. The first time I, so the, what really expanded the scope of this book was when I got Ken Adamani involved, who was Cheap Tricks manager from the very beginning. And Ken, me and Ken went back and forth about having this meeting probably for a year. This is going back to 2017, 2018. And when we finally were going to have this meet, I was going to meet him at his country club. He, he actually lives like a half hour away from me. He at one point emailed me. He said, how would you feel about having Bunny Carlos at the meeting too? And I, of course, I was like, yeah, I would feel good about that. So, <laughs> so when I went to this meeting at Ken Amani's country club, probably in 2018, you know, I walk in the door. Ken's son was waiting outside to meet me. He brings, as soon as I walked through the door, straight ahead, I see Bunny Carlos sitting there. And I literally had a three and a half hour meeting with Ken Adamani and Bunny Carlos, where Bunny just, I had already sent a list of questions through email. So Bunny came prepared, kind of knew the kind of information I wanted to know about. And, you know, I still have a little handwritten list he put together of years and who was in what band because you know that's one thing i was really trying to nail down with this book was all these different bands that these guys were playing in together and apart before cheap trick and so he really helped with a lot of that and uh but then that was pretty much all i got from bunny until i got the, the, the until the publisher came on board then i had maybe three or four more phone calls with bunny basically he tried to answer any question i threw at him at that point you know, I, I made when he's told me to send him questions, once I got the publisher, I made a really long list and then I was trying to pare it down. And finally, I just thought, screw it. I'm just going to send it all. Yeah. So I sent them the whole thing and he just called me up, went down the list and talked about each one. You know, he had less to say about some and more to say about others. But and then I would send him more questions and he would call me again. And yeah, I think it was three or four times we talked on the phone after I got the publisher. So it's been, you know, amazing. And he was a huge help. And Ken Adamani was just a huge contributor to this. He's, he has saved everything. He has all these old letters. 
and documents and he knows every date they played at which club which <laughs> he was a little cagey about giving me his complete list but if i wanted to confirm something with him or if i wanted to fill in a hole because you know at one point the book kind of becomes a day by day almost because i know so many dates they played right. at the clubs and it just kind of tracing that trajectory as they build it and build build their following keep having these flirtations with record labels all of that ken adamani was such a huge help i mean that's why i know so much that i know about their uh, the different record labels that were interested in when and who came to see what show and then i talked to a lot of the guys from those labels that came and saw them you know they had a lot of interest before they signed with epic going back to 75 and a lot of that information comes from ken adamani or he told me which other people to talk to. Like I talked to David Steffen, who worked for A&M, I think. Yeah. And that's a name that Ken gave me. And when cool. I talked to him, he told me the whole story about going this, about, uh, it was um, Jerry Moss, who, you know, told him, I heard about this band Cheap Trick. Jerry Moss is the M in A&M. He told him, I want you to go check out this band Cheap Trick, because I think David Steffen was like a Chicago-based guy who worked for A&M. And he told me the whole story about going to see Cheap Trick at the behest of Jerry Moss. And so, you know, that's, those are the great kind of stories that, you know, nobody, I never knew that A&M had scouted Cheap Trick, you know? Yeah, so see, that's cool stuff. Now, yeah. let me ju let's jump back a little bit. You go to the country club, what are you wearing? What do you wear to the country club? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Ken told me at least have a shirt with a collar on it, <laughs> you know, and this was in the summer and I think I wore pants. Yeah. When it would have been a short stay and like a just a shirt with a collar. <laughs> yeah. No okay, t-shirt. What, what does Bunny Carlos wear there? A t-shirt and jeans. <laughs> of course. Of, of course, course. Yeah. Bunny Carlos. Okay. No, yeah, I noticed that that Ken had told gave me given me the dress code, but obviously that information hadn't been communicated to Bunny right. or he ignored it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he ignored it. Now, yeah. when you have that meeting, do you record the meeting? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. And actually, uh, there's an episode of Rock and or Roll, my podcast, that came out last week where you can hear some of that. Oh, neat. Um, That's I, great. I, yeah, I made an episode with clips from a lot of my interviews that I did for the book. And Ken and Bunny gave me permission to use, it's about three minutes worth. I think I sent it to both of them. They listened and told me it was okay. All you right. know, I definitely don't want to <laughs> piss either one of them off. So of I wasn't going to put any of that out without them approving it. But they both approved it. So it's pretty cool. You can hear how we're sitting there. I just had the recorder in the middle of the table. Bunny's manager was there too. And you can, you hear, <laughs> it's funny. I hadn't noticed that at the time, but uh, Ken, uh, Ken talks over Bunny a lot and they're kind of <laughs> competing. You know, they're both telling stories and it's pretty amazing to hear. Is, um, do you feel like you're friends with Bunny Carlos now? Is Bunny Carlos your friend? No, I know. I don't feel that way, but Ken Adamanti told me I'm his friend. All right. <laughs> but, but Bunny, um, I can email Bunny and he'll respond. <laughs> I don't know if that's a friendship. <laughs> I mean, that's that's pretty good. You probably have some friends that don't respond, but if Bunny is. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, before I forget, on Twitter, you can go to at band has no past. Follow that handle on Twitter. Also, the book right now is on Amazon. You can get it for $17.99. What a bargain. Anything that's 20 bucks or below, that's a sweet ass price point. So buy this book for someone you know is a music fan. Buy this book for someone you know is a cheap trick fan. 
and let's get the word out there on this thing. Come on, come on. Um, <laughs> we're going to be, we're going to keep talking about the book, but I do want to tell you that the title of this episode today is cheap trick, dirty dozen deep cuts, because we do play music on the show. And so BJ and I have both chosen six cheap trick songs that we feel are deep cuts and need to uh, get a listen. And uh, it's actually going to be a Baker's dozen because BJ also picked our playout song. So there'll be 13 songs today. Okay. Now, BJ, how long did it take you to write the book? Because you just mentioned 2018. That's four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's about five years I've been working on it. But of course, that's not like as if I was working on it Monday through Friday, right. eight hours a day. I have a day job and everything else. But, you know, it's a it's the research process of old newspapers, magazines. And then I just, I listen to any podcast the guys around, watched YouTube videos. And then also, you know, I did like 80 interviews. So, and then compile you compile all the research and then you have to write the book. So yeah, it's a, it's a long process. Definitely the kind of thing where there's some point in the middle where you think you're never going to finish it, but like I've said, you get to the top of the mountain and then when once it's downhill and once you once you have a once I had an actual book that I was just rewriting and tweaking and adding stuff to, then it became a lot of fun. But there was there were definitely points of despair, <laughs> you know, over the course of it. But yeah, it's it was a ton of work, but it's the kind of thing I've always done. I've always been I've always been searching for music, <clears throat> reading about music, learning about me. So it's really my hobby anyways. <laughs> right, you know? right. So, so it's uh it's work, but it's fun work. Yeah, a lot of it was fun. Yeah. I, I would say that. the worst part is transcribing <laughs> interviews. That part is yeah. not fun. You can employ but. someone to do that though, if you had yeah. To. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't in my budget, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh I forget. You're married. Yes. Kids? Yeah, one one daughter. How old is she? She's 15. She'll be 16 in what, three days? <laughs> you didn't want to make 20 or 30 bucks to transcribe these interviews? <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, she would have loved that. BJ, when this comes in the mail and you, you open up a box and you hold this for the first time, how did that feel? Because this now it's a reality when you're holding it in your hand. How did you feel? It was amazing, but it was also weirdly anticlimactic in... You know, sometimes it builds and builds for years to this moment. And then when the moment comes, you're like, I should be more emotional than I am right now. But it's like, like I say, if I could go back 20 years and show myself this book, I would completely flip out and probably faint. But once you've gone through the entire process to get there, it, I guess it loses some of its luster. I mean, it, it's just been a long, crazy process to get here. But yeah, of course opening that box was, I mean, it was pretty mind blowing, but it was, um, you know, the whole, like you talked about the pictures. I mean, so as I gathered the pictures and then once they sent me the layout, you know, so I had been seeing this thing as it was put together and um, yeah, it's, it really seems like, like I say, if I could just have seen it without <laughs> going through the whole process, it would have completely blown my mind. Yeah. You know, I can imagine. I mean, because it's great. How many times can I say it? It's a great book. And now a word from our sponsors. Pat Francis from the Rock Solid Podcast here. And let me just tell you, life doesn't come with a user manual. 
you know, you get uh, in and out of relationships or you move to a new city or you're starting a new job. Sometimes just talking with family and friends doesn't do the trick. So here's what I recommend. Maybe try better help. BetterHelp therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills. BetterHelp has connected over 3 million people with licensed therapists. It's convenient, secure, and accessible anywhere, 100% online. You know, you're on vacation, you're on a business trip, and you need to talk to someone. Well, that's where BetterHelp comes in. In a perfect world, everyone would be able to talk openly and honestly with their friends and family about some of the problems they may be experiencing. But we know that isn't always the case, so BetterHelp is a great option. With BetterHelp, you can learn coping skills, self-empowerment, and how to deal with trauma. Again, everyone deserves to feel their best, and BetterHelp makes it easier to get started. As the world's largest therapy service, they've helped put millions of people together with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, available 100% online. All the benefits of in-person therapy, plus it's more convenient, more accessible, and more affordable. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. And get this, no waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. If you're stuck, then it's time to get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash RockSolid. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash RockSolid. Now back to the show. All right, let's play a couple tunes, then we'll jump into some more book talk. What is the first deep track from BJ Cramp? Yeah, and this is a funny one because I... This is something that I tried to explain in my book is what is actually the first song on the first Cheap Trick album because there's actually a debate, right? And well, the first song always was the song that I picked, which is Hot Love. You know, the the record cover, you look at the back of the album, it tells you that the Hot Love side is the first side. I mean, any anyone would have assumed that. But, you know, I did uncover over the course of the book and of course, they did that in 1998 when they reissued it. They made Hello Kitty's the first song. Boo. And I, <laughs> I do have proof in my book, basically, of what the intentions were. But how can you ever not think of Hot Love as the first song? I agree. And, That's the way I've always heard the album. And right. I'm going to add this to the mix. When you bought the cassette, mm-hmm. Hot Love, that side was the one ready to play. Yeah, I have the original cassette, and it also says side one and side two because nobody had Epic thought to carry that over to the cassette version. (laughs) So for me, I agree with you. This is my preferred way to listen to the album. Hot Love is my first track. Yeah, and it's a great opening track, and it's maybe kind of the punkiest song on the record, maybe, or or He's a Whore, but... Oh yeah, it's a it's an amazing song, and it's also you know in my book Jack Douglas talks about his socio political intentions for the album and stuff like that. Well, this is maybe the one song in the album that is just about girls, you know. And uh, <laughs> you know, at Rick's picks, there was actually I think I mentioned in the book there was handwritten lyrics at Rick's picks that it said "Hot love will burn your palms." That was actually written on what are Rick's lyric sheets. That's <laughs> so a, this that's... is not a socio political song. <laughs> And that sounds like a Rick lyric. Yes. (laughs) All right. Let's hear a little bit of it. Hot Love 
from the Cheap Trick debut album, self-titled 1977. Here we go. I tell people this is one of the best debut albums of all time, even though people don't know it the way they know, like, let's say Boston's first album or the car's first album or the pretenders first album, but this is right up there with all those albums. And I just don't know why there's not more love from the non cheap trick community. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a, it's a weird album. It's a heavy raucous crazy album yep but the songs are amazing and the everything about it is so cool and yeah i think it's it's a cheap trick it stands alone in the cheap trick catalog and it is an album that would probably appeal to a lot of people who might not be that into the rest of cheap tricks catalog really because it's such a heavy crazy album but i absolutely love it yeah me too i mean if you gave this to someone and didn't tell them who it was, they might not even know it was Cheap Trick. Yeah. Yeah, it was the kind of thing for me where I heard that album later when I had already heard like In Color, Heaven Tonight, Dream Police, stuff like that. And when I heard the first album, it blew my mind. You know, that was the moment they started becoming my favorite band of all time because I realized there was so much more to Cheap Trick than I really understood. Yeah, because um, I think I I bought Budokan first and then worked my way backwards. Mm -hmm. This is probably the last one I bought at that time. And then from then on, day of release, starting with Dream Police. But uh, yeah, just an amazing album. My first song, because uh, I didn't want to pick songs from the albums that you chose. So I went with the right. other albums. I went with the sophomore album, In Color. And I went with Come On, Come On. Back to book talk. You said you did over 80 interviews for the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's sadly, there's three people missing. <laughs> yeah. Who are those people? Yeah. Rick Nielsen, Tom Peterson, and Robin Zander. Yep. What's wrong with them? I don't know. I've tried to figure that out. I don't know if they just think I'm trying to make money off of them or I'm trying to dig up dirt or or what it is 
I really, at, at the very last second, I tried one last time with Rick. I tried everything. I said, I'll send them the book. I said, what if I only email five questions? I tried anything. Yeah. You know, I, I, did you have Doug Broad on your show or did you know that book? They just seem a little weird that he had a couple years ago. No, no, I, did, I don't even know about that book. Oh, it's about Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, Kiss and Stars and kind of the crossover between all those bands. And so those guys wouldn't even talk to Doug and Doug has like a resume where he worked for spin TV guide and all these and Robin and Tom just told him no. And then Rick gave him one hour. Um, I couldn't even get an hour from Rick, but uh, they just, they're just not interested in this kind of thing, I guess, which, and I'm not really sure why, but like I said, it's probably that kind of thing of where oh, this guy's trying to make money off of us or something. But I have a feeling if when they see if, and when they see the book, maybe, <laughs> they'll wish they had talked yeah, to me i don't know it. um but um you know through my research through hundreds of different sources they do tell a lot of the story in their own words because i there's just so many quotes from them that uh you know i did my best to get their perspective in there as much as possible see i would be concerned that if uh if i was rick or robin or tom and i knew or found out that bunny was involved i'd be afraid that he was going to steer the narrative and we wouldn't have our say mm. how much uh how much did bunny steer the narrative or was he just being straightforward and factual <clears throat> yeah i don't think he steered the narrative all, at all and you know there are things bunny told me that i've know through my research aren't necessarily accurate so mm. um he just you know he told stories he, there's a lot of stories from Bunny and, and, you know, he was there, you know, he could talk about Jack Douglas and recording the first album. He could just talk about specific, you know, I asked him a lot of, about a lot of specifics, but there's not, it's not like he had any kind of an agenda or anything. He, you know, Bunny is a huge music fan and like a music history buff. And so, and he's really proud of having been in cheap trick. And so I think he, he wants, he, he would want to know the stories himself about bands he likes. Right. So I think he like, and he has, he has a good memory. You know, it's like when you're, when he was experiencing this, I think he understood how lucky he was. And also he looked at it from a fan's perspective at the same time. So he knows which, details a fan would want to know because he's such a big fan himself right and so i think he remembers a lot of that and he likes to share those kind of stories but also you know just through asking him questions i've got some really good stuff that he probably never even told anyone before at the same time so that's that's the stuff that's yeah. the stuff right there yeah uh that was one of my questions in doing the research and everything what was one big thing that you learned that you had not known before other than the A&M coming mm -hmm. after them? Well, like the, the way the checkerboard pattern comes into the picture. Um, that's something that, you know, I've, I've said on other interviews, the best questions, a lot of the best questions are the ones you don't even know to ask. Right. Because I didn't, when I was talking to Joel Danzig, who was a partner in Hammer guitars and he built the 12 string bass and, you know, he's the guy behind the five neck guitar and Uncle Dick and all that kind of stuff. He when I was talking to him, I didn't know to ask him about the checkerboard pattern. But, you know, I, I ended up he ended up telling me about how 
you know, he played a role in Rick Nielsen realizing that the, the, the cheap trick logo, the black on white matched up with the checkerboard. So it became like part of that aesthetic. And so that was an amazing, you know, that was an amazing feeling when he was talking about that. And I was realizing how important this was. He, and he was just like telling it as an aside, <laughs> you know? So right. stuff like that is, was so he just, amazing. He just throws it out there and you're like, yeah. hey, and you grasp onto it. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yeah. You got some blurbs on the back of the book, which are cool. You got one from Bunny Carlos, one from Ira Robbins, and one from Tom Worman, who for me is the, uh, is the quintessential cheap trick producer because I just love those records that Tom did. Yeah. Um, does Tom say in the book, why he never worked with cheap trick again. No. Um, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that or, you know, <laughs> after him, they had George Martin and then Roy oh, yes. Thomas Baker and sure. Todd Rundgren. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah the, I mean, the cheap trick story in the eighties was, uh, and, you know, Worman, he was really busy in the eighties too. That's true with, with my yeah. crew and stuff like that. But you know, it's it's this weird thing where they they the you know in hindsight the guys have expressed a lot of displeasure. Well, it's Rick and Tom with the production of In Color, which is a lot of hindsight because you know why did they make two more albums with Tom Werman if they were so yeah, unhappy yeah, with exactly, In Color? Exactly. And I want you don't want me. Tom Werman is a super nice guy. Tom Werman has gotten a lot of flack from different you know D. Snyder talks shit about him. The guys in Motley Crue talk shit about him. So I don't really know what the deal is. He's incredibly nice and he, you know, was very successful in his production career, but then he gets all these people that talk bad about him and say, they're not happy with records that he produced that were multi-platinum yeah, successes. Maybe that so. might have to do with money. Maybe his back end deal on those albums was high. Maybe, maybe he makes more money off them than the actual players do. Who knows? Yeah. That's just business. Yeah. 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 Right. He was also involved with Budokan, I believe too. Yeah. He was over there in Japan, I think, or he, he was participating in the recording for Budokan even. So yeah, I mean, he was, and he, well, Tom Werman was instrumental in them getting signed to Epic in the first place, you know, because Jack Douglas called him yeah. at Epic because he was an A&R guy. Then he came out and saw them and then he brought his boss out. So before he even produced them, he was a big part of getting them signed and at all. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You, you never know what's going on. Uh, and then did, uh, did, did drugs cloud everyone's opinion of things that <laughs> yeah. were actually happening back then? Who knows? All right. Let's hit, uh, let's hit our uh, dirty dozen deep cuts. What's your next song for me? Yeah, my next song, I, I love this song so much. Rick calls it Cheap Trick Blues. And I'm not, I'm usually not a blues fan, but Can't Hold On is one of those songs that it, I think is just the brilliance of Rick Nielsen. It's such a great song. And then, of course, Robin Zander delivering on the vocal, but it's just like a hypnotic song that I really just love. And uh, of course, it, you know, it, it was originally released on Found All the Parts, but it was recorded during those Budokan shows, that version is from that. And um, yeah, I love it so much. And I, I'm always hoping they're going to play it live. I've seen them do it at least a few times, but it's such a classic. All right, here it is. Can't hold on.
BJ, to your knowledge, is there a studio version of this song? No, not from back then. They rec- I think they recorded it with Steve Albini. But yeah, not unfortunately. Yeah, they never, I don't think they ever did it in the studio. They're always threatening that that In Color produced by Steve Albini will get a, <laughs> an official release. And I've heard it and I prefer the original In Color myself. Yeah. Yeah. What's out there is pretty much the band just playing live in the studio. Yeah. So, so what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't get it. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My next Dirty Dozen deep cut is from my favorite Cheap Trick album. Uh, It's in my top five favorite albums of all time, Heaven Tonight. And this song is called Taking Me Back. got into the meat of that song but man it's great i love it yeah that's an example of tom Merman's production right there yeah that jerk how dare he <laughs> produce a great song um when you did your research did you have a research assistant or was this all a one-man band <laughs> it was all just me yeah yeah when you uh when you tell your wife hey honey i think i'm gonna write a book on cheap trick Uh, Does she glaze over like my wife does when I talk about uh, Dr. Strange or Marvel movies? (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure my wife's sick of hearing about Cheap Trick, but she knew what she was getting when she married me. I mean, it's not like I'm any different now than I was then. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I didn't I never hit anything either. Like when I met my wife uh, and she came to my, uh, you know, uh, apartment I shared with another comedian and uh, she walked into my bedroom and I had a, uh, a shelf full of action figures. And that did that would have been the time to get out. <laughs> yeah, that would have been the time. So, uh, yeah, be yourself, guys. Don't be afraid. Embrace what you like. Um, the foreword for this book is uh, who's this guy? Some bass player from an underground band uh, called Pearl Jam. Jeff Amit. How did you uh, how did he get involved? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, at some point, the publisher asked me who might who did I think might write the forward and I hadn't even given it any thought and of course the name they floated was Dave Grohl because I mean isn't that the only name (laughs) that anyone ever thinks of for anything um 
so I was I was thinking, you know, I the first couple of people I thought about one was Cameron Crowe because oh. of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, nice. and what was Matt Groening? I was like, what if Matt Groening? So I couldn't figure out how the hell to contact Matt Groening, but my friend Eric uh, had an email address for Cameron. Eric used to do a podcast. And the email address he had ended up being Cameron Crowe's production partner. So I emailed him. He talked to Cameron about it and he wrote me back and he said, Cameron said he's too busy. You should ask Jeff. <laughs> then okay. my friend Eric also had an email for like a Pearl Jam contact, ended up being Sarah is her name. Because so, I've never communicated directly with Jeff. It's always just been through Sarah. But so I, and it was funny because then I was able to say, Cameron Crowe said, <laughs> you know, when I emailed. So uh, Sarah said, I'll put this on list, Jeff's list of things to consider. And I didn't hear anything for a couple weeks. Then they asked to see the book. I sent the book. Then I didn't hear anything for maybe two months. And then all of a sudden I got an email. Uh, Jeff wanted to make sure you knew he wants to do it. And he already started working on it. And I had basically given up on it by then. And so that was pretty mind blowing. And then he actually came through with it. You know, the publisher kind of told him what maybe the deadline was, which was pretty weird to give Jeff Amon a deadline. But <laughs> but he came through and uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. And, um, you know, he he like he wrote Jeremy on a 12 string bass and, you know, he's obviously a huge fan. And uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I was obsessed with Pearl Jam in high school and, and you know, I still love their second album verses and it's a. Uh, that's just another surreal part of the whole thing. <laughs> it's pretty cool. A guy that you've never met before and boom, he's written yeah. the forward to your book. We, we are worried that if you read the forward, what if you didn't like it? Could you have rejected it? Could you have said no? <laughs> yeah, I guess that would have been an, uh, one more thing to, for me to add to my pile of things to worry about. But luckily I never thought about that, <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, I hadn't actually thought about that, but yeah, luckily it did a really cool forward. He did a great job and it was funny, you know, he's such a creative guy that what he sent was these like pictures of like this weird typewritten thing that he had done. And, you know, the publisher couldn't actually use exactly what he made, but I was like, can we please try to get it as close to what he did? Because he did this, he didn't just write a forward. He made a whole art project out of it. So that's why it looks differently. You know, that's why they tried to make it look as close as they could to what Jeff actually sent over. I hope he's happy with it. I haven't really, you know, they sent him a book and I, I haven't heard anything. Well, I know. bet he loves it. I'm, hopefully you'll yeah. hear from him. That would be cool. Yeah. Um, how much input did you have with this cover? Because it's perfect. It's got the, uh, without using their logo, it's got the font. It's got some checkerboards here. It's uh, black, white, and red. I just think it's uh, it's amazing. Like even you, you know who the book's about without even reading any of the words. How much input did you have with this? Yeah, that's a that's a weird thing. It's difficult for someone like me to surrender creative control. But that was you know somebody who works for a job and who put that together. I guess my main input would be I came up with that subtitle a long time ago, and my idea always was that it would approximate the logo on the cover. Because mm -hmm. it says how cheap trick became cheap trick, and then you get right. the double cheap trick. So that was my concept, and that worked out. And the only other input I had is I got them to change the colors. I think, uh, I think the first one they sent me, this band has no pass, was orange. 
No. And true. and then how Cheap Trick became Cheap, Cheap Trick was white. No. So I got that changed to the white and the red. Yeah. That's really that. the only input I had was the color. So. And you're right. It's a tricky little thing when you write the t- the subtitle like that. And you do yeah. kind of get the logo without getting the yep. logo. Yeah, that was my that was my idea with that subtitle. <laughs> it's yeah. tricky and it's smart. Yeah. All right, let's get into some music. Let's go for your third cheap trick track. What do you got for me? Yeah, one of my favorite cheap trick albums is One on One, which you know it's weird that it was produced by Roy Thomas Baker, but you don't hear a lot of Queen or Cars production on it. It's kind of this heavy metal punk album but uh one real standout deep cut on that album for me is time is running it's just this punchy song with great melodies the bridge i love the bridge it's it's a short blast uh, just a great example of a great fun cheap trick song i would tell you before you sent me your list this was on my list oh this, cool this exact song <laughs> and um i loved one-on-one when it came out in 1982 and even though it is, but when I saw Roy Thomas Baker's name, I did think it was going to be a sound yeah. different than it does. Cause it's kind of a big, loud, noisy rock <laughs> yeah. and roll album. And you know what? That works. So I here it, it is. Time is running. minutes and 20 seconds of rock and roll right there so good love it all right i'm gonna move on to the follow-up album with much different production yeah next position please produced by todd rungren and i don't believe this was released as a single you can tell me that uh that's why i'm calling it a, a deep cut uh borderline that wasn't a single yeah i don't think it was they played it on that uh what's his face from uh growing pains thick of the night yeah they played it on his show yeah, yeah they did yeah uh, so this is borderline DJ, what's your opinion of Next Position, please? I love it. 
Borderline's absolutely one of my favorite Cheap Trick songs, and that's another one with an amazing bridge where Rick would write these bridges that really tested the limits of Robin's range. Of course, <laughs> Robin would pull it off. Yeah, it's weird guitar tone and stuff, but the songs are are great. I, I love I love that album. It's yeah, it's great. Yeah, eighty two and eighty three, just yeah. so good. You know, I was uh, graduated high school in eighty two, went to college in eighty three. And those two albums were just getting so much play from me. No one else in the dorm, but from me. <laughs> yeah. You go, what are you listening to? Uh, <laughs> they still around. <laughs> I like I like surrender. All right, get out of my room. <laughs> um, all right, there. Like I said before, there's many pictures in here. And look, if you've never seen Rick without a hat, in this book, there's tons of pictures. Rick with hair and Rick without a hat. Super yeah. cool. How difficult is it to secure the rights to these photos? And how did you find these photos? Well, a lot of them are from Rich Kwasniewski, who the photographer who's just been incredibly generous and just let me use anything. He sent me hundreds of pictures. You know, all the ones that were that there's those two pages where there's a whole bunch of pictures from that photo shoot. They're black and white. Yeah. Those were taken at Rick's dad's store. And um you know, that accordion picture was used. Well, he's holding it on the first album cover, even though oh, from that shoot. But yeah, Rich and those ones that are at Rockford Armory, the color that those uh, Rich took those. Uh, the ones from Summerfest when they were for Peter Frank. Yeah, Rich uh, gave me amazing pictures. And then Bunny gave me some and Adam Annie gave me some. And then there's a few that are from fans that I had seen posted on Facebook. Like there's a great polaroid from the mother's day show but yeah rich kwasniewski was so generous and really just told me i could use anything and it's funny because at some point rick nielsen had asked rich not to share any pictures of him without a hat and i remember when i first talked to rich a couple years ago he told me that and so i didn't even think i would get to use those pictures so i was so relieved when he said he was just like screw it it's history you know right and I think he's just happy to have his work out there. I mean, that photo shoot where they're at uh, the Ralph Nielsen Music Store, uh, those pictures are amazing. That's why I told the publisher, we got to get all as many of these in as we can. So that's that was my idea to you know, put them all on there. They're, they're kind of small, but there's so many of them and they're so cool. So I just yeah. wanted to get a bunch of them in there. And the quality is great. I mean, it's not like yeah. it's not like the quality is has diminished um, and. And you didn't have to pay Rich any money for these? Nope, he didn't want anything. Amazing. um, He's great, yeah. He should release a photo book, a cheap trick photo book, if he has photos. Yeah, there's those pictures from that Summerfest show in there. I mean, he sent me 100, at least 100 pictures from that show, probably 200. And he's standing on the side of the stage, took tons of pictures where he's right on, you know, there's only one picture in the book where he's, you know, where the whole band, that was my favorite picture from the whole the whole group, but he's just standing right there on stage with them. And there's so many pictures. And then there's those backstage ones too. You know, there's a great picture. There's even an amazing picture of Bunny that was isn't in the book that I love. But um, yeah, yeah, Rich, you know, I, I couldn't thank him enough. I'm thinking about putting out some, maybe selling some bookmarks with some of his pictures to try to get wow. him get him some money because i really appreciate what he did so much and uh what was i going to say about these photos um or about rich oh i just lost my train of thought 
because I was because I'm looking at these photos and it's so it's just well so also cool. that the ad for Hamer guitars that Rick was in guitar player in 1975 Rich took that picture too and he gave me an outtake from that he sent me all the outtakes but you know we only got one in the book also I have a blog that I put a lot of that stuff on the blog page too if you just go to this band has no past.com so you can see more of the outtakes from the the guitar player you know that was in November 70 or October 75 that Rick was in Guitar Player long before anyone outside the Midwest knew who Cheap Trick was. He's in that yeah. ad for Hammer Guitars. And Rich Kwasniewski took that picture too. So, you know, Rich is in the book quite a bit because he tells stories from that. Well, I was talking about where the checkerboard pattern enters the picture. It was during that photo shoot for Hammer, for the Hammer ad. And, you know, Rich, um, th yeah, he, he talked to me for the book, told some great stories, and then let me use those pictures yeah, I couldn't possibly thank him enough for that. So he sent you these all these pictures. So you still have these on your computer. You're never giving those up. He's I mean, let that, he. That's amazing. I've used some of them on the blog because I was, you know, for the last month or two, I've been trying to drum up interest by releasing stuff on the blog. And he told me I had free reign, but crazy. I don't want to put out too much of it, right. you know, because. Right. But yeah, yeah, he's it's he's great. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable. Wow. All right. Let's go with uh more cheap trick dirty dozen deep cuts. What's next from author Brian J. Cramp? I call him BJ. Yeah, we could keep moving in through the 80s. We just said it songs from one on one and next position, please. Well, the next album is Standing on the Edge, which I love that album <laughs> too. And uh I picked do you think this song is a ballad this time around? It's kind of a little bit. Um, um, yeah, I always thought of this as a ballad, and uh, yeah. this is also one that I would have picked had you not picked because <laughs> I love it's, this song too. It's so melodic, you know, it's an amazing song. Do you remember? There's a story in Reputation as a Fra I think it's in Reputation as a Fragile Thing where Rick talks about how you two were at the studio the same at the same time, and he thinks With or Without You was influenced by this song. <laughs> okay. Wow, huh? Well, yeah. Let's find out if we can hear it in here. Right. This is from Standing on the Edge, produced by Jack Douglas, this time around. Yeah, for me, Standing on the Edge, it's got 10 songs. I like seven of them, so I guess I give it a 7 out of 10. There's there's three songs I do not like. Do you know what yeah, they are? Yeah, there's She's Got Motion. Yep, yep. Uh, Rock All Night, maybe. Yep, that's <laughs> another one. 
Uh, what would the other one be? Uh, I mean, this, I mean, this one, maybe sometimes I do like it, but I'm, I'm not that big a fan of how about you? Oh, I love that song. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. When I say that a lot of people are like, no, that's a great song, but uh, okay. I'll, I'll up it to eight out of 10. Then you convince me. I'll, I'll be, <laughs> be wishy washy. I won't stand my ground. Um, all right. Yeah. My next tune I'm going, Oh, I'm jumping way. I'm jumping to the nineties. I'm jumping to, because you cover the other 80s album. So I'm jumping ahead to Busted. And one of my favorite songs on Busted, because for me, it sounds like the Beatles. It's Head to Make You Mine. I had to make you mine. How do you feel about that song? It's great. I actually got to see Robin sing that song at one of those solo shows in the Wisconsin Dells a few years ago. Nice. Yeah. How many times do you think you've seen the band? Or do you know exactly? I don't know exactly. It's somewhere between 40 and 50. But if I try to think back and tally it up, yeah. That's always the number I give, too. Um, First time you saw them, when was it? It was actually Woke Up With A Monster tour. Um, when I was like 20 or something um, at Summerfest. And I went, that was the first show. And that I went with my friend Craig, who I've seen Cheap Trick with probably 20 times. <laughs> you know, I say that in the thank you section of the book. Um, I thank Craig for going to see Cheap Trick with me at least 20 times because that's usually the only time I see him, you know, in, in the recent years is when we go see Cheap Trick. But uh, yeah. And the first time I saw them was um, All Shook Up. With Pete Kamita, who's there's some quotes from Pete in the book, mm-hmm. and uh, Pittsburgh Civic Arena with UFO opened. Great, awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I got to see them twice on that tour, and I believe they played uh, eight or nine songs off of All Shook Up. Wow, right, yeah, because they yeah, even I... played Who the King, so it was crazy. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah. I actually found a tape recently of a, a show I recorded on the 90s when the right when the 97 album came up well I think it was in 98 and yeah they played eight songs from the 97 album at that show too yeah they used to yeah yeah <laughs> they don't they, do that anymore no they would come through LA like you know around 97 through 99 they would come through about four times yeah. a year and you know headlining in you know small places like you know, House of Blues and the Roxy, and you would get an amazing set list. I mean, yeah. whatever album they were touring with, they would really play like five or six songs off of that album. It was fantastic. I really yeah. I was t- I was telling John Lamro on the Hustle about how when I when they became my favorite band, like in the mid '90s, it was like the best time to be a fan because the box set came out. Then they the they did the three night stand. I went to New York and saw them do the first three albums. I was at the Silver concert in '99. It was just a and yeah, the '97 album was amazing, and I saw them a lot in that period, and yeah. they were just on fire. So good, yeah, so good. Um, so the title of the book: This band has no past. 
Tell the uninitiated where that comes from. Yeah, if you look at the inner sleeve of the first album, one side is the logo and the other side is filled with this fake, basically, biography that Eric Van Loosbotter, who became a pretty famous writer later on, he wrote this. And uh, the first line of that is, this band has no past. But they do, and we know that because of this book. Yeah, I like a couple of reviewers have said that I took that as a challenge, you know, that concept, <laughs> which that's is a, great. I like that. Yeah. Um, you talk about the Fuse album in here. That's the first album with Rick and Tom. What do you think about that album? Yeah, it's not really my cup of tea. <laughs> no, me neither. No. no. And I, there's, remember, I mean, uh, there's no indication of what was to come with Cheap Trick. Not at all. That. Like, I no. remember finding it on an import CD and paying way too much for it. And then getting home and playing it and being extremely disappointed. Because I yeah. thought there was going to be a little glimmer of Cheap Trick. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting about that album? I talked to Craig Myers, the guitar player, and like he says, Rick Nielsen doesn't play one note of guitar on that record. At least wow. according to Craig, because Rick was the keyboard player. He would play guitar on certain songs when they played live. But, you know, in that band, he was mainly the keyboardist because Craig Myers was like this guitar virtuoso. And, uh, you know, I've talked about how Rick Nielsen never really aspired to be a guitar virtuoso like Craig Myers, which I think is one thing that sets Rick and Cheap Trick apart is for Rick. He uses the guitar more as a vehicle for songwriting than, uh, you know, he's he's never, you know, Craig Myers was an Eric Clapton devotee and stuff like that. So Fuse had a very different vibe, very 60s. They were also they were all teenagers when they made that album, too. Yeah. So you got to take that into account. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. For me, yeah, Rick's kind of a sloppy guitar player on stage, to be honest. But it's part of the charm. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's part of the, I mean, yeah. I, yeah, we were talking about in the 90s, I would spend a lot of the time laughing because Rick was so funny. And yeah. I would laugh at how he was just wild on the guitar. And it, yeah, I think that's one. Um, I, I talk about how I say they were, uh, reckless even fearless in the delivery it's like that's how the songs are and that's how the the shows are it's like they don't rick nielsen doesn't really care he he's 100 himself he's putting on his kind of a show and like i say in the book you either get it or you don't but if you get it you know you really love it yeah and it's funny rick is kind of the front man in a way because yeah he does most of the talking yeah yeah, I talk in the book about how when they first got Robin in the band, Rick said he was too conservative and they tried to get another singer, <laughs> you know, and yeah, Robin was never going to be David Lee Roth. That was just never yeah. going to happen. And, but Rick had all the personality, you know, Rick had no problem really uh, picking up the slack and taking on that front man role. He's very good at it. But yeah. that's another very interesting dynamic of Cheap Trick. I mean, I guess, you know, there's always been this kind of uh, synchronicity or, you know, the great relationship between Cheap Trick and ACDC. And that's the one other band where you kind of have this, you know, Angus Young, the guitar player, is like completely the focal point, yep. even though he doesn't talk, but he really you know, controls the whole show. He is the show. He is the that's show. basically what it was with Rick, too. Yep. Pretty cool. All right. Back to your list. 1988. Yeah. Lap of Luxury, you know, it's not a standout album necessarily in their catalog, but 
the first song on that album is one of my favorite Cheap Trick songs, Let Go. I just, it's so melodic and, uh, you know, adrenaline rush. I love it so much. And I th- I love the, it's got like that sitar almost sounding guitar melody that it's, it's a very Cheap Trick song. You know, it's, it's a pop production, but heavy guitars, amazing melodies. I love Let Go so much. Now, the intro to Let Go, to me, sounds very much like the Beatles song, If I Needed Someone, from Rubber Soul. Have you ever noticed mm-hmm. the similarity? I don't know if I ever thought that, but yeah, I can see what you're talking right. about. I'm going to play a little of the Beatles, and then I'll right. go into Let Go. So this is If I Needed Someone from Rubber Soul. Here we go. And now here's Let Go. See if you feel the similarity. Yeah, I love that song too. Uh, Cheap Trick always knew how to open up the album. Yeah. Their album yeah, openers true. are very, very strong. So great pick. Great pick. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Where do I jump into now? Oh, I'm jumping into Woke Up With a Monster, 1994. Produced by Ted Templeman. Um... This was kind of like Roy Thomas Baker. I expected something different from Ted Templeman producing Cheap Trick. Yeah, uh, I actually asked Greg Renoff about that. You know, Greg Renoff wrote with Ted Templeman, wrote yeah. his biography. And it seems like Ted is more of an executive producer on the okay. album. Like it's more one of those things where the band and the engineer really did it. And Ted didn't. Ted was like, I think he was maybe head of A&R at Warner Brothers at that time or something. I don't think Ted maybe had a whole lot to do <laughs> with actually producing the album. So Yeah, disappointing though. Um I really thought that uh the band was going to take off again when I saw their own Warner Brothers. I thought, here we go. But uh I do like a lot of the album and this is a song I like, a deep cut, tell me everything. Tell me everything. <laughs> I can have what I want I just want what I got I've told myself a million 
right. Let's get BJ Cramp's opinion of that tune. Yeah, that's a great song. And that's a great example of the versatility of Cheap Trick. Like we've talked about how they have these crazy songs, like the first album in One on One. But that song is just a great pop song with like almost a singer songwriter kind of feel for the 90s. But yeah, it's that's a, a very well written song. You know, I love that one. I love that one. Um, we've been talking about the guys who have produced Cheap Trick. Um I really liked uh, the work Linda Perry did with them on the song Perfect Stranger. Uh, mm-hmm. I wish she would have produced an album by them, although that album's great. We'll talk about it. Um, are there any producers you wish Cheap Trick would have worked with or would work with in the future? Yeah, I've thought about that. Well, one interesting one is in my book, I talk about how Eddie Kramer wanted to produce them, <laughs> which would have been interesting. And also they... There was an idea of working with Jeff Lynn too at one point, which I think that would have worked really well. Yeah, I do too. Even in the nineties, even yeah. in the nineties, you know, they had it was actually Heaven Tonight where they were communicating with Jeff Lynn about possibly producing. But yeah, if he would have produced, you know, the Warner Brothers album, that could have been really great. Yeah. Also, let me ask you this: Cheap Trick has been releasing a lot of music recently, which is cool. Do you think they're going to continue? Would there be another Cheap Trick album? Would there be two more? I think so. They haven't really said a whole lot about it, have they? They had that spurt where they had, well, if you include the Christmas album, they had four albums in five years, which was pretty crazy. Um, Even though, you know, we've we've talked about this. We're not huge fans of a couple of those albums necessarily, but they did have, they were putting them out pretty regularly. And now there hasn't even been any talk really that I've seen from them about the next one, but hopefully there will be because I loved the last one. So, you know, I think there'll be another one. I got to tell you, you, the cover of your book is better than the cover of the last cheap trick album. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When they first sent me that, that was the first thing I saw was that it, it looked like they're the newest, the most recent album, which hadn't, he wasn't even that old at the time they first yeah. sent me that cover. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of too close to their, oh, this is classy. That's a classy book cover. Well, and you know, the, the guy who designed that, he probably had never even seen the, in another world. They didn't even know. <laughs> they didn't even know until I told them that it was kind of a similar um, vibe to the newest album, but they're not doing their homework, but BJ's keeping them in line. <laughs> yeah. Um, other than the other three core band members, was there anyone else that you wanted to talk to and and were unable to get on board? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of people that I just couldn't find, but people that there was a, you know, Jim Gerling is a guy who has a long history with them, but he was their sound man from like 74 to 70s through 76. Um, so that would have been a huge person to talk to. He was also in a band with Tom Peterson's brother in high school. He was around for everything. And I was in contact with him, but they I don't think they parted ways. I think basically what happened was they replaced him as their sound man right before they uh, went national, you know, right before the record came out. And I think he apparently, well, I'm, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it seems like he's still... Not happy about that because he just he told me it would be like talking about a divorce or something. So he wouldn't talk to me. You know, okay. I communicated with him 
and I know because like he was their sound guy for the whole period, almost the whole period I'm writing about the of, of Cheap Trick. So it would have been, and also he was around even before then. So he would have been a huge person to talk to. And also, you know, I'd write about when they were in Philadelphia and the club that they worked at, Rick and Tom both worked at called Artemis. I played phone take with the guy who owned that place, David Carroll. Talked to him on the phone a couple times. He was kind of hemming and hawing about giving me an interview, and then he passed away, uh. like during the process. So, so those are people I actually had them, you know, was in contact with and couldn't. But then there's just the people that I couldn't find, like the different characters in this story that I would hear their name from somebody, but I was never able to. Well, you know, one really important thing for me was to try to talk about Gary Shooter, who was in Rick Nielsen's first band, and he ended up getting sent to Vietnam. And Vietnam was such a big part of their lives for this period of time, for all these guys of this generation. And uh, I really wished I could tell what happened to Gary, and I was never able to get in contact with like his sister. I, I, I finally found someone who was in a band with him after he got back from Vietnam, and he told me that Gary was at a place called Downey, which was like a basically a mental institution for veterans. And so I was able to kind of tell that story because I thought it was an important story because, you know, it was just a roll of the dice. Gary Shooter was the guy who got, he was in the 101st Airborne. He was in ground combat. You know, he was in the worst of the worst in Vietnam, but it was a roll of the dice that that could have been Rick or Tom or Robin or any of them. Yeah, really? So it was, I really wanted to tell that, get that story in there that, that was something that was like Vietnam was a character in this story almost because they were all worried about it. You know, the guy Ron Holm, who I talked to, who was in the band Toast and Jam with Tom and Craig and basically Toast and Jam is a band that became Fuse and Ron Holm could have been in that band, but he decided he needed to keep his college uh, uh, career on course because if he screwed up in college because he was playing music full time, he could end up in Vietnam. Yeah. So, true. you know, that was part of his decision making of not joining that band was he didn't want to end up screwing up college and end up in Vietnam. So yeah, I mean, I, it was important to me to try to get that in there. And Gary Shooter was the way. And so I wish I could have talked to his sister, but I, I couldn't ever actually get in touch with her. So, uh, yeah, that'll that'll keep you studying uh, the threat of uh, going to Vietnam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> keep your grades up. Um, BJ. If there was a if there's a second book in BJ Cramp, what band would would be next? If you decided to do this again with another band, do you do you have a band that's in your second slot? I'm definitely going to try to do it again, and I I was figuring out a list. It's it's really hard because it has to be something that's possible and something that I'm interested enough in. But one 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 thing that I one Hail Mary is that Stephen Roth, who I talked about before, who hooked me up with Jawbone, he, I had asked him, is there any way we could get a copy of this book to Joe Elliott or the Def Leppard camp? And he had a friend who actually took the book backstage when Def Leppard came to Minneapolis and gave it to Joe. So Joe Elliott has the book and they put a note in there for me saying, I want to write a similar book about the early years of Def Leppard. I have very little you know, hope that that will actually happen, but what the hell, I, I gave it a shot. Um, I'm talking to the guys from the dictators. Do you like the dictators? The I don't know the who dictator? they are. I don't know who that is. 
Yeah, they're a New York band. Uh, they were part of the CBGB scene. They have three had three albums out in the late seventies. Their first album, "Go Girl Crazy," is kind of one of maybe the first punk album. They were very influential on the punk scene, like influential on the Ramones and stuff. But they're also kind of influential on heavy metal too. And so Ross, the boss, the guitar player from the Dictators, he started Manowar. So my idea is maybe a book about the Dictators and Manowar, but. You know, I'd like to write a book that would sell more copies. Right, right, right. Uh, another band on my list is Soul Asylum, but that would be another one where I got to, if I could get Dave Perner and Dan Murphy maybe to talk to me. So I'm still trying to figure out, I would yeah. love to do that. That would be too. cool. Definitely. Yeah. Um, what do you have to sell to be successful? How many copies of this thing do we have to move? it to be considered a success by the publisher to where they want to do another book with you. Uh, what's, what's a good number? Like, I don't even know. I don't know how. I don't really work. know either. Yeah. I don't really know either. Um, Ken Adam, and he told me I'm going to sell 15,000 copies, but I don't know if that's realistic. Um, but, yeah. you'd be, but you'd be happy with that. Oh my God. I'd be ecstatic about that. Yeah. Yeah. 15,000. Very I mean, happy. There, there's so many cheap trick fans. How are, have you been posting on any cheap trick boards about this or tweeting at them or anything like that? Fan I've pages? mainly been using, I've mainly been using Facebook. Um, you know, I think that's a good place. To, and uh, I figured out the best way to get their attention is pictures they've never seen. And I had some, especially the picture that Marshall Mintz's daughter sent me that that's what I used. I saved that into release day and then blasted it out there. Right. Because no one I, had I, ever, no one had ever seen it before. No, so, I had people uh, uh, text me and say, "Is that really cheap trick?" I'm like, "Yeah, look closely, yeah, it's yeah. them. Check it yeah. out." But yeah, yeah, I, that, uh, that was taken by Candy. Out. That that picture is taken by Candy. You know that old Candy is about, and his oh, wow. daughter, his daughter sent it to me, and it blew my mind. And so I, I thought, if I'm going to get people's attention, this is a great way. And um, so yeah, I've just been. And like I was talking with Rich Kwasniewski, he's let me, I use a couple of his pictures too. And uh, I do have a Twitter, but I haven't been good about using it. Um, I've really just been blasting it on Facebook. You know, yesterday, Bunny Carlos recommended the book on his page. Nice. That's good. So, yeah, that was, uh, I think, I think he sold hundreds of copies in an instant right there. Yeah. I mean, um, and um, I'm drawing a blank on who, uh, who wrote Reputation is a Fragile Thing? Mike, Mike Hayes. He he wrote me my first five-star review on Amazon. He went straight to Amazon, and he's a, he's a great guy. That's fantastic. Yeah, but you were asking about uh, what I would consider a success, and I told Ira Robbins that when he sent me his blurb, I already felt like I was successful because I really respect Ira Robbins. I've been a – always. Charles Press has been very important to me as a music nerd and a record collector, and so when I got that validation from Ira Robbins – that was enough for me to feel like everything was worthwhile, you know? Yeah. He says, Brian Cramp's amazing forensic investigation into the band's prehistory and early days does for cheap trick. What Mark Lewinson did for the Beatles. And then he ends his quote with, I thought I knew the story, but I learned a lot. I mean, that's, you can't get better than this. Yeah. Just amazing. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's move on to a couple more of our dirty dozen deep cuts. This will be your last one before we do your playout song. Tell me what you got for me. 
Yeah, I love the album Rockford from, is it 2006? That yeah. is uh, maybe in my top five. I don't know. It's up there for Cheap Trick albums. I really love that album. And the song, If It Takes a Lifetime, is this is an example of just amazing, an amazing pop song from Cheap Trick with huge melodies. And I just love it so much. It's very poppy. I, I feel really lucky I got to see them do this song live in Naperville, Illinois. I went to this big sh like outdoor show there because I don't think, you know, like we were talking about, they don't really play the, the stuff off the new albums the way they used to. No, and, and they uh, don't play anything off Rockford, really. I know. It's yeah, sad. when I, that show I saw, they did Welcome to the World and this and probably Perfect, Perfect Stranger, Stranger. Yeah. It was awesome. I feel really lucky I got to see that. I love this song so much. Yeah, I love this song. I love this album. And yeah. Um, yeah, coming off of Special One, which mm -hmm. has some good songs, but it's not a great album. This was a right. revelation. Like, I never thought something this good was going to come out at that time. So, if it yeah, I've said no, no other band has put out that good of an album that deep into their career. I don't think I can't think of uh, it, it's it's tough. It's tough to think yeah. of. One. Yeah, this, this is an amazing one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was buying this record and giving it to people yeah. back then. And this deserves a vinyl release. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the cover is so great. I love yeah. the cover. I <laughs> the mean, whole package. Come on, Record Store Day. Put this on yellow vinyl. It's going to be amazing. Oh, my God, yeah. Eight folded. So cool. Yeah. All right, here it is. If it takes a lifetime. good so good bj before i play my next song which is from 2009's the latest i want to ask you a question do you think it's time for tom to sing a song again <laughs> um you know it's fine with me <laughs> i'm you know when you got Robin Zander in the band, I don't think if you need so anyone else to sing uh, Tom's, but you know, Tom likes it obviously. And, and they always give him his spotlight in the live show. And yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, the fans would definitely enjoy it. If they, yeah. if Tom sang another song, I'm only, I mean, come on, these newer albums. Why, why couldn't Tom have one song per album? He's obviously not pushing for it because he's so happy to be back still. <laughs> but I mean, I would just, I'd like a Tom Peterson song on these albums, something fresh that he could sing other than, you know, I know yeah. what I want. Oh yeah. You're right for the, it would be good for the live show too. If they would have something new. Yeah, They said something <laughs> new for him. Yeah. So, and it would definitely be a fan pleaser. I think it would be. I think that. so too. People would get yeah. excited and yeah. uh, come on, throw, throw Tom a bone. He's doing it. <laughs> All right. From the latest, which, uh, you and I talked about this with Ken Mills. You mm -hmm. guys had me on your show. And uh, 
I'm lukewarm on the album, but again, it has good songs on it. So I love this song and it's called These Days. DJ Cramp, thoughts on that song? Yeah, I like it. And I've been thinking as we listen to these songs, like Tell Me Everything and stuff, it's like, what would these songs be without Robin Zander? I, he's so great. And uh, he really he really elevates this stuff. They're good songs anyways, but he just elevates it. It's, yeah, he's so important to, to it. I, I mean, you know, like Rick missed some shows recently and uh, Robin Sunfield. I mean, guys have missed shows, but there's never been a show without Robin. Mm-hmm. And you just, you can't have cheap trick without Robin Zander. Yes. You can't have cheap trick without Rick writing mm-hmm. these songs back in the day, but as a touring entity, I don't want to show up and Robin's sick and someone else is singing. It's not going to work for me. No. Uh, yeah, no, you can't replace Robin Zander. That no. yeah. <laughs> so, there you go. I so would not we, be. Real, I would not have been real happy if I had gone to one of those shows without Rick, though. <laughs> either that would wouldn't really work for me either. Uh, they played out here um, on August tenth. Uh, luckily, I had COVID, so I couldn't go. <laughs> uh, but that was one of the shows without without Rick. But I had tickets to go, but I couldn't. I mean, I understand why he sprained his ankle and he couldn't do the shows and they didn't want to cancel him. And I get it. But at the same time, that would be hard for me to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What uh, what people fail to realize is when a band cancels a show, they might be able to take that hit monetarily. But your road crew and your lighting yeah. people and all those people, it trickles down. They can't be without that money. They need that money to support so I understand if they soldier on. Yeah, and, definitely. Uh, you know, people should accept it. But yeah, Rick and Robin, that's the sweet spot. Uh, okay, BJ, I didn't listen to any of the other podcasts you did in promoting your book. Because I don't like mm-hmm. to do that because then it might affect questions I'll ask. But I hope that we covered some different territory than some of the other interviewers did. I'm sure we covered some of the same territory, too. Yeah, I don't think I've repeated myself too much. No, this has been great. Um, yeah, I feel good about this. I don't. <laughs> I'm pretty hard on myself after most of these interviews. <laughs> no, you did. No, yeah, great. No, this is great. Yeah, excellent. I had a fun time, and all I want to tell people is: look, this band has no past. How cheap trick became cheap trick. If you are a cheap trick fan, you you can't be without this book. You have to have this book. Even if you don't, even if you're not a big reader, just looking at these pictures is going to drive you crazy. You're going to, then you're going to want to read the book. So buy this book, get it for your friends, 
it's a great Christmas gift, birthday present. It's the real deal. And if I didn't like it, I wouldn't have BJ on because I wouldn't I wouldn't feel good about that. You know? Yeah, if if you look at that one picture that's the band Fuse sitting at the Memorial Union Terrace, that picture was a slide that Ken Adamani had. It was just a slide that I took and I got it developed. And that's my favorite picture, I think, in the whole book, because it's so beautiful. You know, Rick and Tom, but it's just that was a slide that was in a box in his garage that was never, no one's ever, was ever going to see it. You couldn't even really tell what it was until I went and got it developed. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I love that something like that has been, no, it would have been lost. Yeah. I've never know? seen this press photo for sick man of Europe. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. I mean, we could talk about this book for hours, but then you wouldn't want to read it. So go get it, go read it. We want to sell 15,001 copy. That's what we want to do. Yeah, we want um, to make Ken right. <laughs> I like giving co two copies away, but I feel like that's uh, actually taking away from two people that would buy it. So look, buy the book. That's the whole deal. And, and keep listening to Cheap Trick. So, <laughs> and how come Brian on the book instead of BJ? You want to be more professional <laughs> sounding? Yeah, I guess. It was funny, they uh, when they sent me the first cover, it did say BJ on it. And uh, and then I asked them to, to change it. Um, <laughs> you know, the first time I ever started going by BJ Crap was when I made an album. It was I was it was based on PJ Harvey. That was like, that's where for I mean, it is my initials, but right, um, it is. I started to use when I started doing my podcast, I was going by BJ Kahuna. But then Ken Mills just kept always calling me by my real name, like on podcast and stuff. And then it became convoluted. Um, you know, when I first started going by BJ, it didn't, it wasn't this kind of universally, you know, term that meant, you know, <laughs> that way. But people, do people think of when they hear BJ now, they just think of something else. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's part of the reason I, but yeah, I needed to sound more professional. Yeah, well, <laughs> Brian it, J. Cramp is a very, authorly name it really is it's good <laughs> well and it's also good. it's funny in milwaukee you know I'm, I'm in madison but in milwaukee there's a local newscaster named brian cramp he's on tv and zeno even thought it was him so i do also need to kind of differentiate myself right. from that guy <laughs> you got the j in there yeah <laughs> all right brian j cramp bj bj kahuna continued success <laughs> with this book Again, if you if you have any more mock-ups of pictures and little blurbs and ads that you want me to tweet out, I will be happy to do that. I'll tweet it out from my personal Twitter and from the Rock Solid Twitter because uh, I love Cheap Trick and I want people to love him as much as you do and as much as I do. And I can't think of a better way to do it than to read This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick. So thank you for being here. Again, is there a website we can go to? I guess. Yeah, there's the blog and it's this band has no past.com takes you there. And okay, there's great. a lot of cool stuff on there. For example, there's the old questionnaire that Rick Nielsen filled out for Ken Adamati in 1967. Ken, let me bring the actual real thing, the paper that Rick wrote on. I brought it home and scanned it and it's on the blog and it's like asking Rick, you know, what is, what's your favorite magazines? What are your favorite movies? What are your hobbies? And Rick was, what was he like? 18 or, or something when he filled that out in 67. 
and uh it's the you can see it on the blog there's a lot of stuff like that and there's pictures and there's i just released a blog post today about marshall mintz who oh candy is about and i have i had never seen a picture of him until his daughter sent me a picture of him with his camera amazing <laughs> so there's really cool stuff you can see on the blog cool so everyone go to say it again this band has no past.com will take you to the blog. Cool. And then on Twitter, if you want to follow, give a shout out. If you've purchased the book and you want to give it some props, Twitter is at band has no past. All right. One more song. It's the playout song. But before that, follow us at Rock Solid Show. Go to rocksolidpodcast.com for all things about the show. And if you're so inclined, please support the show via patreon.com forward slash rock solid podcast that's the way you're gonna win two copies of this book it's for the patreon people that's how we do it so <laughs> bj tell us what the playout song today is gonna be well when their new album came out in another world i because i hadn't been a huge fan of the previous two albums honestly and i was not really expecting a whole lot and well you know Guess who sent me that? I, I got to hear it early because huh. my friend Pat Francis sent me that album. And uh, oh my God, the title track, there's two versions of it. There's a ballad and an up-tempo one. They're both amazing. Yep. But agreed. this, the fast version, Another World Reprise, is one of my favorite Cheap Trick songs. The fact that they're still coming out with a song that I would put on my list of favorite Cheap Trick songs is mind-blowing. I love this song i love it it's so great all right everybody thank you bj cramp and everybody please enjoy another world reprise thanks bj thank you so much pat mm -hmm.